Welcome to my series of podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. My name's Tony Riches and I'm a historical fiction author from Pembrokeshire in Wales. In this podcast, I'm looking at the life of Catherine Willoughby, one of the most unusual ladies of the Tudor court. Catherine's been part of my life for the past three years, as she first appeared as a young girl in my book, Mary Tudor Princess, and then as the wife of Charles Brandon in Brandon Tudor Knight, and finally in her own right in my book, Catherine Tudor Duchess. Before I began researching Catherine's life, I only knew her as Brandon's last wife, but I then discovered how important she became, particularly to the king's final queen, Catherine Parr. Attractive, wealthy and influential, and a favourite of King Henry VIII, Catherine knew all his six wives, his daughters Mary and Elizabeth, and his son Edward. So how did this daughter of a proud Catholic become a champion of religious reform and risk her life for the Protestant cause when Queen Mary Tudor came to the throne? Catherine was born at Parham in Suffolk on the 22nd of March 1519 and was the daughter of William Willoughby, the 11th Baron Willoughby de Eresby, and his Spanish wife, Maria de Salinas. Now, Maria was a lady-in-waiting and a close companion to Queen Catherine of Aragon and sailed with her from Spain. And the marriage between William and Maria took place in June 1516, which was the same year that Queen Catherine gave birth to her daughter, the future Queen Mary. Henry VIII paid for the wedding of Catherine's parents at Greenwich Palace and gave them Grimsthorpe Castle in Lincolnshire as a wedding present. Catherine was named after the Queen, and as the only surviving child of the marriage, one of the wealthiest heiresses in England. And Catherine became the 12th Baroness Willoughby de Eresby when her father died. She was only seven years old at the time, and she lived in seclusion with her mother at Parham, until her wardship was purchased by Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, a brother-in-law and lifelong friend of the king. Catherine moved into the Brandons' household when she was nine and joined the couple's three children, Francis, Eleanor and Henry, and Charles Brandon planned for Catherine to marry his son and heir, Henry, who was the Earl of Lincoln, But when Brandon's wife, Mary Tudor, who was the Dowager Queen of France, died prematurely at the age of 37 in September 1533, the Duke decided to marry young Catherine himself. Although he was 50 and Catherine was by then 14, their age difference wasn't unusual for the time, although eyebrows were raised because Brandon waited barely three months after the death of his wife. The change for Catherine was immediate as she now was in charge of running her husband's household and she became stepmother to the Duke's five children, um, all but one of whom was either her age or older, except for Henry, who was intended to be her husband. Catherine's marriage to the Duke proved surprisingly successful because the Duke became the richest landowner in Lincolnshire And Catherine, of course, became Duchess of Suffolk. Few women in court outranked her, and she had privileged access to the king and his court. 
Sadly, Brandon's son Henry died of a fever in March 1534. But Catherine and Charles had two sons. The first was Henry, named after the king, and he was the new heir, born in 1535. But the following year, the family found themselves in a difficult situation because Anne Boleyn, who Catherine understandably had never been particularly keen on, was found guilty and executed for treason on the 19th of May 1536. And Henry married his third wife, Jane Seymour, 11 days after Anne's death. Now, Charles and Catherine were present at the marriage. And that autumn, uh, the Pilgrimage of Grace, which was a rebellion in response to the dissolution of the monasteries, broke out in the north. And Charles was deputised to help put an end to it. In fact, he was so successful, he was asked by Henry to reside permanently in Lincolnshire as a way of keeping order, and Catherine joined him there. Their son, Charles, named after his father, was born the following year in 1537, and both Charles and Catherine were back at court in the autumn of 1537 when Jane Seymour finally delivered Henry a son, Prince Edward. Charles acted as godfather and Catherine was chosen to carry the baby back to his chambers following his christening. Of course, um, Queen Jane died of complications from childbirth on the 24th of October 1537 and Brandon returned back to Grimsthorpe and rebuilt it using money from the dissolution And the next time they met the king was during his progress to the north with his new queen, Catherine Howard, in August 1541. A few months later, of course, the young queen was arrested and executed in February 1542. But Catherine Willoughby became popular at court and well known for her wit and often outspoken views about the pomp and ceremony of the Catholics. And um, when her nemesis, the Catholic bishop Stephen Gardner, tried to silence her, Catherine notoriously named her dog after him and would call it to heel to amuse the court. Catherine and Charles were chosen to welcome Anna of Cleves to England and Catherine became her friend and confidant, a connection which later proved invaluable. Catherine's Religious views were reinforced when Anne Askew, a reformist Lincolnshire woman who she knew, was condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake in March 1545. Now Catherine must have really worried that Anne would name her, uh, but even under torture in the Tower of London she refused to implicate others. Catherine was one of only 18 witnesses to the private wedding between the King and Catherine Parr. And she became a close friend of Henry VIII's sixth and last Queen and often visited her. The Queen shared Catherine's Protestant views and Catherine invited the leading reformer, Hugh Latimer, to Grimsthorpe Castle to preach about the need for a simpler religion which could be understood and made relevant to ordinary people. Charles Brandon died suddenly at the age of 60 in Guildford in August 1545. Catherine was only 26 and Charles's heir 
Henry was now the Duke of Suffolk at 10 years old and he joined the household of young Prince Edward to continue his studies. Now, Charles's will stipulated that Catherine would remain unmarried until his children came of age, but she seemed to accept it happily enough and um, at court befriended many influential men who championed the Reformed faith, including Edward Seymour and John Dudley. She also maintained her own separate friendship with Henry VIII and the king was fond of Catherine and there were even rumours that she might become his seventh wife. Here's a short excerpt from the audiobook edition of Catherine Tudor Duchess narrated by actress Ruth Redman. Catherine waited in the king's presence chamber, the most richly decorated room in Hampton Court Palace. She wondered if what she was about to do was God's will or a foolish act which would put her family at risk. The voice in her head persisted, ask only for Charles to be released from his duties at the border. No one will know. She'd slept little the previous night, rehearsing what she might say. It was too late to go back on her promise to Catherine. Their friendship had passed the point of common interest. Now she'd been trusted with Catherine's great secret and knowledge of what was happening behind the scenes at court. A liveried page summoned her and she took a deep breath. Alice had over-tightened the lacing of her kirtle under the new overgown of rich Italian silk and she found it hard to breathe. Alice said she thought the neckline too revealing, but Catherine hoped it might help her hold the king's attention. She made her way down a narrow gallery and through the high doors into the king's privy chamber. The walls were hung with brightly coloured tapestries and thick carpets deadened the sound of her footsteps. The room was smaller than she'd expected, lit by quarriers, the square blocks of fine beeswax casting their golden light over a table laden with plates of half-eaten food. Catherine hadn't seen the king for the best part of a year, and the change in him was worse than anything she'd prepared herself for. Flanked by gentlemen of the privy chamber, Henry sat in his great gilded chair of estate. He looked as if he'd been poured into it, his leg resting on a velvet-covered footstool. The ulcers on his leg had worsened, and the smell carried on the air, despite the attempts of his physicians to mask it with thick, perfumed bandages. Catherine curtsied low in front of him. Your Majesty. Her throat felt dry, and her voice sounded softer than intended. Lady Suffolk, his voice wheezed as if even speaking took an effort. Henry dismissed his courtiers and shouted for his servants to clear the platters from the table. Catherine heard the door close behind them. She'd been left alone with the king, a fact which would soon be whispered in the palace corridors. Henry raised a heavy, gold-ringed hand. She wasn't sure if he meant her to kiss it, but took it as a sign to rise. She stood straight before him as his sharp eyes studied her. His appraising gaze rested too long on the exposed top of her breasts before his eyes returned to hers. His broad face broke into a disarming smile as he gestured towards an empty chair. "'Bring it close. I'm curious to know what brings you here after so long an absence.' Catherine pulled the chair as close as she dared, her pulse racing as she tried to recall her carefully rehearsed words. Her whole future, and even that of her family, might rest on what she now said. Henry frightened her, and she tried not to think about the consequences for those who'd caused his displeasure. 
she decided to be direct. I plead for the Archbishop of Canterbury, Your Grace. Cranmer? Henry's voice showed his surprise. I would have thought Thomas Cranmer capable of pleading for himself. Catherine took a deep breath. The moment had come, yet she wished she was back in her mother's rose garden at Grimsthorpe. There is a plot to denounce him as a heretic. As God is my witness, I know Archbishop Cranmer to be a most loyal servant of your majesty and saw it as my duty to bring this to your attention before it's too late. Her words tumbled out too fast. The king studied her in silence. Catherine heard his wheezing breath in the otherwise silent room and caught the sickly scent of his bandaged wound. She didn't take her eyes from his or break the silence, but said a silent prayer in her head. Deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. You remind me of your Spanish mother. She was also quick to voice her opinions. Henry frowned. I tire of those who would plot behind my back. He shook his head at the thought. Do you play chess, Lady Suffolk? I do, Your Majesty. Then you'll know two bishops of opposite colour better protect the king than one acting alone. Henry stared at her with unblinking eyes. I'm aware of how Bishop Gardner works, though. I'm glad to be forewarned of this. I thank you for your mercy, Your Majesty. His humourless smile put her on guard. There is, of course, a price. Catherine felt numbed by his words. She'd been too quick to count her daring meeting a success. The king could ask whatever he wished, and she could not refuse. She said nothing and held her breath as she waited to hear his demand. Brandon tells me you would dissuade him from being my commander for the invasion of France. Henry raised his eyebrows in mock scorn. I asked who runs his household, and now I see. His voice became serious. This is our last chance to repeat our victory at Tournai, and I need him at my side. You have my word, Your Majesty. Good. He winced and shifted the position of his wounded leg. Catherine saw a pink stain spreading on the white linen bandage, and her revulsion changed to pity. The king could afford the finest physicians and the most expensive remedies, yet suffered with his old injury. She forced a smile and looked Henry in the eye. I must confess nothing I could say would keep Charles from the chance to ride once again with your army in France. He still has two statues he took as trophies of your victory at Tournai. Henry laughed. I like your honesty. You have your father's spirit. He was a good man. He gave her a conspiratorial look. What do they say about me? Your Majesty? The people. In truth, what do the people say when they speak of me? Catherine momentarily glimpsed the insecure man behind the mask of kingship. They say you are an impotent invalid. The people rejoice now your majesty has secured the throne with a fine and healthy son. Henry brightened and his chair creaked as he leaned forward. That gives me great comfort, Lady Suffolk. I see why Princess Mary speaks so highly of you. My mother thought of the princess like her own daughter, your majesty so to me she is like a sister. Henry smiled. I was right to bring my daughter back to court. Is it also time to think of your other daughter, Princess Elizabeth? Catherine wondered if she'd gone too far, yet Henry looked thoughtful. I shall think on it. This time there was warmth in his smile. You must visit more often, Lady Suffolk.
King Henry VIII died on 28th of January 1547 and Catherine Willoughby was present at his funeral a few weeks later. She stayed on for Edward's coronation on February the 20th and both her sons uh, were present as well and they were knighted and sent to St John's College, Cambridge to complete their education. With her close friend William Cecil, Catherine helped to fund the publication of the Queen's controversial book, The Lamentation of a Sinner, in 1547, and became a vocal and influential champion of religious reform. She's actually named with William Cecil as a benefactor on the first page of Lamentation. When Catherine Parr died in September 1548, she had just given birth to her only child, a daughter who she christened Mary, and her husband, uh, Thomas Seymour, was arrested a few months later and executed in March 1549. Now Thomas wished for his daughter to be sent to Catherine at Grimsthorpe, and although his brother Edward Seymour promised that funds from the child's parents' estates would help fund her upkeep, nothing was paid, and curiously, there's no record of what became of little Mary. My theory about what became of the child is in my book. In the summer of 1551, during an outbreak of what's known as the sweating sickness, Catherine sent her sons Henry and Charles to the Bishop of Lincoln's Palace at Buckton in Huntingdonshire to escape the deadly disease. Sadly, on July the 14th, 1551, both her sons succumbed to the illness and died within minutes of each other. Catherine was understandably devastated and spent a year in mourning. But then she married for love to her gentleman usher Richard Bertie in 1552, as she was no longer bound by the conditions of her first husband's will. They had a child, a daughter, Susan, who was born in 1554, and things were going well. But then the Catholic Queen Mary was crowned and began persecuting Protestant reformers. On New Year's Day 1555, Catherine and her family fled into exile on the continent and arrived at Brabant in February with her daughter and they dressed up as a simple merchant's family, although they'd been able to take with them little more than what they could carry. From there, um, she travelled with her husband to Cleves, and this is where the connection with Anna of Cleves comes into play. And Queen Mary may have well been loyal to the memory of her mother's lady-in-waiting, Maria de Salinas, and would have hesitated to harm her daughter. But Catherine's status made her high-profile enough to be a threat. Um, they had a son who they called Peregrine, which Peregrine, unusual name, but it's it comes from the, the word peregrinations, which was a reference to their constant travelling. He was born in Cleves in 1555, the same year that Hugh Latimer was burned at the stake in Oxford. And the family lived in near poverty until they were assisted by the King of Poland, who actually had approached Catherine as a potential suitor after Charles Brandon died. She politely turned him down, but uh, he didn't seem 
to be that troubled by it. After Queen Mary's death in 1558, the family returned to England and back to Grinsthorpe. And although Catherine didn't serve Queen Elizabeth as a lady-in-waiting, she did use her position in Lincolnshire to promote religious reform. Catherine had always been a strong supporter of the Protestant faith, and many books on reform now carried her coat of arms or were actually dedicated to her, including works by Erasmus and William Tyndale. So she was very much uh, at the forefront of the Protestant religion. The family's adventures on the continent were told in popular Elizabethan ballads, and so um, sometimes these were a little bit exaggerated, but it was fascinating for me uh, during the research to try and sort out the the timeline and the fact from the fiction. Sadly, Catherine died after a long illness, aged 61, on the 19th of September 1580 at Grimsthorpe Castle. And I visited there, which much changed over the years, but it's still home to the 28th Baroness Willoughby de Eresby, and it's possible to visit Catherine's Tudor rooms and her chapel where Hugh Latimer preached reform. And I also visited her magnificent alabaster tomb at the Willoughby Chapel in St John's Church, Spilsby in Lincolnshire. It's enormous, it, it's floor to ceiling. And her husband, Richard Bertie, who died only two years after Catherine, is buried beside her. Catherine Willoughby was a woman far ahead of her time, prepared to stand up for her beliefs. And the story of her life helps us see the complex world of the Tudors through a new perspective. And I believe she would have been pleased to know that that's her legacy. My book, Catherine Tudor Duchess, is available from Amazon in paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. And more information about all my books can be found on my website at tonyriches.com. Thank you for listening.